Last week, we finished up chapter 1 of Ephesians. This was Paul's prayer. And so we noticed three distinct parts. just want to review really quickly. Last week, for some of you may not have been here. Three distinct parts to Paul's prayer that included thanksgiving, intercession, and praise. Hopefully, what we talked about last week, and if you weren't able to, to be here, I'd encourage you to listen online to it, but hopefully that has a major impact on our prayer life, how we come before the Father in our times of prayer. Uh, I, I hope that we were encouraged. I hope that you were encouraged to look for evidences of grace in one another, in other believers. Uh, we have to be looking for those or we'll just go right by them without noticing. We were also challenged last week to live differently, knowing as Paul finishes the chapter, says that Christ is in all. He fills all. If, if Jesus really is in everything, think about the kind of incredibly life-giving spirit that he gives to believers. See, Paul mentions that there, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is in you, believer. And so the power of the spirit is where Paul goes to next in the second chapter here. There are passages of scripture that are a joy to read, like much of chapter 1 just a joy to read where it's full of God's promises of the inheritance that we have in Christ. And there are other passages that we read that just cut like a knife and reveal us for who we really are. And that's what Paul does in chapter two. Our, our content this morning isn't like something that you're going to stand up and clap when we read just at the beginning. But I hope by the end and then especially next week, as we start to round things out in this second chapter, you, you might. You might be ready to do that. But let's read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and then we'll pray together. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, as you, as you reveal the truth of who we are, I pray that it's, it's not lost on us, but I also pray that, that this truth does not define us if we are believers. I pray that the, the salvation won for us by your Son is what truly defines us. But Lord, sometimes we need to understand where we've come from to understand where we are going. And I pray that you would help us to see things clearly in that this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So Paul, in these first few verses in chapter 2, Paul is painting a picture, not a literal one obviously, with his words, with what he says, the content of his message. He's painting a picture here. Look right away, the beginning of verse 1, he says, you were dead. Who's he talking to? And the same people he's been talking to. He's talking to the people in Ephesus. He's talking to the Gentile church here. 
Gentile Christians in the church. I think maybe Jews in the church may have heard this. Paul say, you were dead, and they might be sitting there, a little bit of pride in their hearts, saying, yeah, that's right, Paul. You tell them. You tell them how they really are. You know, and, and so Paul does. He, he's, he's saying, you know, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Uh, I don't know that the Gentiles would have even denied that this was true of them. Okay, but Paul doesn't let the Jews off the hook here. Just skip forward to verse 3 real quick. He says, we all once lived. He says, like the rest of mankind. He's not letting anybody off the hook here. Just as he does in the book of Romans especially, especially the first few chapters of Romans, Paul is, is going to great lengths, I think, to just corral every person into the same pen here. He's just bringing us all in to the same, under the same condemnation almost. He's saying, you all are dead in your sins. Now, this is why I said, you're not going to jump up and clap about this because this is not fun to hear. And yet this is what Paul says. I don't think either that Paul is describing some unregenerate people group or some cannibalistic tribe a world away. He's describing every single person. He's describing you and me. Apart from Christ, this is us. Dead in our trespasses and sins. Guys, no matter where you come from, no matter what your earthly standing is, every single one of us is in the same leaky boat. It's leaking. There's holes all over it. And we're all in it together. And we're all in mortal danger. And without some kind of sovereign intervention, we're going to sink. It's not like, well, maybe if we just do this or try this, it's no. Whatever you try, you're still going to sink. Paul illustrates now the condition of every person apart from Christ. And and he uses three descriptions. In verse 1, he says, you were dead. That's the first one, dead. That's how Paul describes you. That's how Paul describes me. He repeats this same phrasing in verse 5. He says, even when you were dead in trespasses, in our trespasses. That word specifically, I think, refers to acts of sin. Like we actively do this. We go somewhere where we shouldn't. Like trespassing, that's what that is. We go somewhere or do something that we should not do. Whereas sins, dead in our trespasses and sins, sins I think is referring more just to the whole package of human evil. The thing that clouds everyone. Why are we dead? Why is that true of us? Because of our trespasses, because of the sins which we commit. Guys, every single person, you, me, every single person is responsible because every single person has sinned. But Paul, I think, is teaching something that goes deeper than just our sinful actions. In verse 3, he says, we're by nature children of wrath. It's not just what we do. Not only are we guilty of sinning, but our very nature is in a sinful state from the beginning. You know this. The world does not like this approach. They don't like the Christian's approach to human nature. And unfortunately, I think there are a lot of churches that don't like this approach to human nature either. Many believe that we, you know, we shouldn't major, you shouldn't, you know, just harp on the negatives of sin. Instead, you know, magnify people's self-worth and self-esteem and self-value and then everything will be good. And that kind of sounds right, doesn't it? It sounds appealing. It sounds loving and it sounds accepting to have that view. But 
man, there's a problem with that view. And I think it can be revealed with just one simple question. For someone who says, well, don't major on sin, just appeal to self-worth and self-esteem. Here's the question I would ask. But where does your worth come from? Where should your esteem be found? In ourselves or in the work and the person of Christ? I just want to just clarify, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with seeing ourselves through the eyes of God as his beloved children, purchased by the Savior and kept by the Spirit, right? That's what he said in chapter 1. We should view ourselves that way. I mean, this is part of our inheritance now, and we can and should rejoice in those things. But we don't have that position in Christ because of anything that we have done. It all comes from a force outside of us. It all comes from Jesus. So our value and our worth cannot be determined by anything that's inherently found in me. It can't be determined by anything that's just inherent inside of you. Your value, your worth is 100% determined and fixed by God's love for you in Christ. That's where our self-esteem comes from. People that, that don't believe this, I, I think are going to live their lives in fear of losing that worth, of losing that value because they don't realize that it's not created or sustained by them. It's reliant completely on Jesus and his worth, which never changes. The world tells us that people are basically good. Well, we're just basically good and it's the whole nature versus nurture debate. And if you put in, you put person in the right environment, that they will be a good person. That's what, that's what a lot of people say. And if you're not, if you don't have the perfect environment, all you have to do, here's a solution. All you have to do is just, you know, block out those naysayers who are trying to ruin your self-esteem and self-worth. Don't listen to their negativity and just think positive thoughts about yourself. That's what we're told. But the Bible doesn't teach that. For people of the word, we need to listen to what the word says. What is, does the Bible say that good people go to heaven? No. The Bible says that saved people go to heaven. So, in fact, I would expand this a little bit more and remind us of what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 7. He doesn't just say that, you know, good people don't always go to heaven. I mean, he points it out and he says that there are a lot of good people that are deceived and they aren't really genuinely known by the Father. So the Bible teaches that Jesus is the only person who ever was or ever could be good enough and that he has given or imputed his righteousness, his goodness to anyone who believes. Anyone who believes in the Son has life. That's what the Bible teaches. Lots and lots of folks, they may not say, okay, well, we're all you know inherently good, but surely every bad person has just a little bit of good. And every good person, you know, has just a little bit of bad. Do you guys know what that philosophy is, is called? It's, it's, it's mysticism. It's, it's the yin and the yang, right? Uh, our family just watched Kung Fu Panda last night. And that's a major thrust of that movie. Karma, chi, all of that stuff that's really not biblical or real. But people think this. A lot of people think that, you know, we're, we just have a little bit of both or that we're a blank slate from the beginning. 
when it comes to morality. Then this creeps its way into the church this way. If that's a philosophy that we begin to believe, then that starts to impact our evangelism and how we understand and share the gospel. So if we believe that there's a little sliver of good in everybody, then all you have to do to win them to Christ is just appeal to that little bit of goodness and then you know, the gospel is just going to fan that little bit of goodness into flame of sal- into the flame of salvation. But this is not what the Bible teaches about sin or salvation or, or evangelism, for that matter. The Bible says that we are not morally good. In fact, we're not even morally neutral here, Paul says. We don't just start as blank canvases. We start in sin. Uh, I'm going to reference The Princess Bride again. I don't know if you guys like that movie, but you remember uh, the main character? I forgot his name, Wesley. So he was killed in the movie, and they take his body to Miracle Max, and they say, hey, he's dead. What can you do? And what does he say? Well, he's not, he's not really, he's just mostly dead, right? He's partially alive. He's just mostly dead, and that's, that's the big thing. But look at what, look at what Ephesians 2 is saying right off the bat here. Is, is Paul teaching that people are mostly dead and partially alive? He's not. He, he's not at all. So it, it's gonna take more than this chocolate coated pill from Miracle Max to make us alive together. So I've asked this question before, but it is a question that, that stumped me in my understanding of some of these biblical doctrines. Can dead people hear? It's a simple question. If, if a dead person cannot hear, then how could we respond unless the Spirit makes us alive to hear the gospel message? Do you see the, 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 the things that kind of have to, the dominoes that have to fall in order for you to be saved? Brothers and sisters, this should cause us to give glory to God like none other. Because we had nothing to do with this. We didn't start the first domino at the least bit. Unless we're acted upon by an outside and superior force, not one person would be saved. Nothing dead would ever be made alive again. And so not only are we dead, but Paul then in verses 2 in the beginning of 3, he says that we're disobedient. He says, in which you walked according to the ways of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Just like Adam and Eve, every one of us disobeys God instead of following God. And Paul points out three different ways in which we are disobedient. You can see them there. We followed the world, we followed Satan, and we followed our own flesh. Three things. And without Christ, you guys, every single person, every one of us will follow the overwhelming influence of the world. The influence of the world is heavy upon us, whether we want to admit it or not. If Again, if not acted upon by an outside force, we will assume the beliefs and attitudes and habits of the world around us. It's going to happen. We will go with the flow, and it's because we're not morally neutral on our own. It's because we already have a bent towards selfishness and deceit, and it starts in our nature. And as much as we love our kids, man, it doesn't take long to see this played out in their tantrums and in their fits. Our nature is just corrupt. But it's not just the world. Paul says that before Christ, we're, we're under the influence of Satan. 
the influence of the evil one. Paul is going to discuss this more in later chapters in Ephesians. And he, he actually talks about this uh, spiritual warfare, the enemy. He talks about it more in Ephesians than in any other New Testament letter. And he, here he uses the term prince, power of the air. And he does, I think he uses these words to communicate something, a truth about Satan that is sort of foreign to us in the truth that Satan has influence in this world. There is a semblance of power that Satan has. And if you talk with missionaries from Mexico or Haiti, they see this more prevalently than we do here. They see the influence of Satan played out often. In the book of John, I'll point out that Satan is referred to as the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul refers to Satan as the god of this age. And that he, now in in verse 2 of Ephesians 2, it's saying that he, the, the evil one, is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This, I don't believe, means that every single person is possessed by the devil. I do believe that it means every single person lives in a world in which the evil one holds sway or holds influence. Tony Merida says this about it. He says, talking of Satan, he lays out the bait and sinful people take it, disobeying God. It's not only the influence of the world. It's not only the influence of Satan that leads to our disobedience. I think probably the most unavoidable is the influence of our own flesh. Nikki and I worked with students for 15 years. And in that time, we, we tried to consistently teach them a specific truth from Scripture. Now, of course, we teach our own children this same thing. But it's, it's simple and it's offensive. Don't trust your heart. Can you imagine us telling a bunch of teenagers that? Don't trust your heart. But it's true. And so we tell our kids, don't, don't trust your heart. And, and I realize that this flies in the face of every Disney movie ever made. Okay? Because there are whole songs and albums about, you know, following your heart and all of that stuff. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And if we're people of the word, then we should just listen to what the Bible says. Listen to what Jeremiah 17.9 says. The kids learn this in Awana, if you didn't know this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick or wicked. Who can understand it? We can't encourage our kids or our teenagers or our young adults just to follow their heart because their heart is desperately sick without Christ. Okay, well, if we can't trust our heart, then what are we supposed to do, Rod? The answer is simple, and I think it's probably right there in front of our face. If we can't trust our hearts, trust God. Trust His Word. When your heart is telling you to do something that is in opposition to Scripture, you don't go with your heart. You go with the Word. I've I've heard... I've heard couples say that they're just not in love anymore because their heart's not in it. And surely God wants them to be happy. So they feel justified in getting a divorce because they just, their hearts aren't happy anymore. Now, these kinds of situations are, are challenging. And I want to, I just want to say that, that the church can help navigate through things like that with you. And if you're that, in that boat today, I would pray that you'd reach out. If God has established marriage, and I think we would agree that he has, 
If marriage is to be a reflection of Christ's love for the church, and if that union is one that Jesus himself is never going to abandon, then would God condone breaking a marriage union simply because our heart told us it was okay? Is, is our heart more reliable than God's own word? Again, I realize that these things are difficult to navigate through, but please remember that resources are available. And I would hope that you would explore every option before making up your mind. But the reality is here, guys, without Christ, our hearts are just going to lead every single one of us down paths that we shouldn't go because our hearts are not reliable truth holders. They're not. They're fickle. They're unreliable. They shouldn't be sources of authority when it comes to important things. Until they've been captured by the Son and sealed by the Spirit, our hearts are not to be trusted. And even now, believers' hearts, we need to be constantly comparing our actions and our motivations and our hearts against the unchanging and perfect Word of God. What is true here? Is it the way I feel in this circumstance or is it the unchanging truth of God's Word? This is hard to see the influence of the world and Satan in our own hearts But Paul's not quite done telling about how bad this situation really is. The third point is that we're just doomed. Such a a positive thought there this morning. Verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3, the end of it. He says, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are disobedient because we're doomed. We're not sinners just because we sin like it describes us. We sin because we're sinners. It's inherent in our nature. We are sons of disobedience because we started as children of wrath. That's how this goes. Our spiritual status, guys, could not be more clear and it could not be more tragic here. The just wrath of God is what disobedient hearts and sinful natures truly deserve. God is right to condemn us in our sins. He is holy and just, and He won't just sweep things under the rug. He doesn't ever act out of uncontrolled anger or revenge. God judges rightly concerning our sin. Now remember at the beginning, I said Paul is painting a picture here. I think it can be summed up like this. Apart from Christ, there is no hope. What other other message do we have to take to the world? If we take another message, are we really sharing the gospel? If we make people think that there's hope based on their church attendance, on them just not cussing anymore, or giving up alcohol, or staying with their spouse, or any hope of being right with God apart from salvation, then we're not teaching the gospel. Apart from Christ, there is no hope. All of Paul's teaching can be summed up like this, and this is what's referred to as total depravity. Total depravity. All That just means that all aspects of our being have been infected with the deadly disease of sin. Every part, every facet is infected by it. Guys, our sin is too great. Overwhelming, not awesome. It's too overwhelming. And even if we could... Even if you could atone for your past sins and make yourself right with God, you don't have the kind of power and self-discipline to not sin going forward, do you? I don't. 
Paul's describing here how we are not capable of responding to God apart from His grace. Were it not for His grace, we would be miserable and yet totally content to remain in it. Were it not for the grace of God, we would have no idea how lost we really are. The picture that Paul is continuing to paint here is not just bleak, it's hopeless. You hear us here at church, you hear us talk a lot about sin here. And we do that for a reason. We we talk about sin a lot because the Bible talks about sin a lot. Because Jesus talks about sin a lot. This is an uncomfortable thing to talk about, really. And I know some of you may be thinking, well, you know, Rod, everybody sins. We know that. Stop harping on us. Tell us good news. We know. I'm a sinner. I get it. Okay? I, I hear you. I understand what you're saying. There is good news in this. And we will get there. In fact, it's not just good news. I mean, it is good news, but it is the best news. It is better than anything else you could hear. But, but Paul doesn't start there. So we can't start there. Paul starts with the, your sin is so deep and so widespread that you have no hope to be free from the consequences of your own part. That's where Paul starts. So that's where the church starts. There's good reason that he starts there. If you believe that your sin isn't that big of a deal, then you will always minimize the atonement. If your sin is not that bad, did Jesus really have to die then? If you compare your sin to that of others who you deem worse than you, you will never truly appreciate Christ's sacrifice until a person recognizes the effect that their sin has on a holy God they cannot be saved. Salvation involves true repentance, which will not happen while we're downplaying our sin. It won't. The picture that Paul is painting so far is just, really, it's just like this big, black, dark canvas. Think about that. If Paul was painting a picture here, he's just taking big strokes of black paint and he's just filled the canvas with it. In fact, it can almost seem depressing. But God's goodness and wisdom are going to be displayed here. I want to show you how. Fellas, how many of you guys bought an engagement ring? Think about that experience. When you went to pick out that ring, and whether you knew what she wanted or you just picked it out all on your own, when you went to buy a ring, how did that jeweler show you his rings? Did he just take it out of the case and hold it up like this and show it to you? Well, maybe he did. But there's a good chance that your jeweler brought out this ring and he laid it on something. He laid it on a black cloth. And then he brought over this nice bright light and he put it right on it. And then he pointed out all of the little angles and cuts. He's a salesman after all. A good one at that probably. And he's pointing out how beautiful it is and how clear it is. And I don't know the three C's or however many C's there are. That's what he's pointing out. And he's showing you this. This is what Paul is doing here, I think. I think this is what Paul's picture that he's painting is. That black and depressing backdrop of sin. And it is highlighting the gospel like never before. Our sin is that black canvas Jesus is the beautiful diamond and the Bible is that bright light that's shown on him. 
In Ephesians 2, and what we're talking about, what we've seen so far, in just the first few verses, Paul has set the stage for a magnificent contrast between the ugliness of our sin and the beauty of a Savior here. And look at verse 4. This is where we're going to start next week. These are the two most beautiful words in the Bible. But God. All of what Paul has described is true before that. But that's not the end. It's not the end of the story. But God, there's that outside force that we needed to do something on our behalf if there was ever going to be hope of being right. But God enters in. We're going to dive into these things next week more fully. But let me just give us a quick highlight of what to come. Kind of whet your appetite a bit. God in his mercy, because of his great love for his children, has made us alive. We've been talking all morning about how we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And now, here's the contrast. God is going to make us alive with Christ. He's rescued people out of darkness and welcomed them into the kingdom of his light. Man, our sin is so widespread and far-reaching But these two words hold hope that there is redemption and forgiveness of sins through the sacrifice of Christ. On the cross, he fully and forever atoned for the sin of every person who believes. In his kindness, God displays the immeasurable riches of his grace towards otherwise helpless sinners by sending his son. Guys, Girls, if God has saved you, you are his child today. But it's not been because of your goodness. It's been by grace through faith. Not from your works. Not from anything inside of you. These are gifts of God himself. If your heart is nothing but a black canvas of your sin this morning, if you've never known the light of the gospel, if you've never seen Jesus as that beautiful diamond in contrast against your sin, and remember these two words that just make all the difference now and in eternity, but God. There's hope. There's redemption. There's forgiveness in Christ. But it's not because of your good works. Stop trusting in them. Stop running after them. Stop wearing yourselves out in them. Rest in the finished work of Christ. But God has entered in. In Ephesians 2, the Holy Spirit leads Paul to call our attention to the reality that we already sang about this morning. Our sin is great, but His love is greater. Our sin is great, but His mercy is more. This is the beautiful truth that Paul is leading into from going the first three verses here and he's just saying, you're dead. You're disobedient. You are doomed. You have no hope on your own but God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder. God, I have been just so humbled this week in remembering that salvation is none of Rod, none of me. I tend to want to cling to my performance. I tend to to rest my acceptance before you on all of my behavior. And you've reminded me again this week that that's not what it rests on. 
it rests on the unchanging person of Jesus. And that's the same for my, my friends here this morning. So Lord, change our minds to this. Free us from the idea that salvation comes from inside of us. Reveal to us the truth yet again that this is a work of the Spirit. These are gifts of God so that none of us would boast in anything but thereby grace through faith. Thank you for entering in, for contrasting the beauty of Jesus against the darkness of our own hearts, against the darkness of this world against the darkness of the devil's schemes. Lord, help us not to embrace the lies that he is proposing, but to embrace the truth that it's all of you. And in that, we give you thanks and praise this morning. In Christ's name, amen.